Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Smoke is coming out of the Capitol. They've evacuated it. We're in strange times. With all that's going on, it might seem strange that I would use this time together to address what to many may seem like a comparatively secondary subject to all the big subjects of the nation and the world. But uh, if you are new to Nightlight, or if the name Robbie Zacharias is not familiar to you, it is understandable that you might feel that way. But even if you're new, or if you are not familiar with Robbie, or if you know only a little about him, uh, but he's never been a bright spot on your radar, I would still ask you to please listen. For what I have to say will be virtually very important to you, even without the sense of personal pain I and many of my close acquaintances and regular listeners are now feeling. I believe it will all come clear if you listen through to the end of this message. If any of you have been following the ongoing sordid details, you know that shortly after Robbie's death in May of last year, reports began to surface that Robbie had engaged in repeated premeditated, decades-long, immoral sexual behavior. As I write this now, uh, the final official results of independent investigations are, are not complete, but I can't think of any additional news that would be more painful than what we already do know, for the stories have been now confirmed as being true. What remains to be reported are really just more, probably just more painful details. There are scores of posts now online and articles and magazines and I guess every form of social media you, you can imagine related to this story. I, I don't blame people who release these responses for their needing to vent or to examine or to grieve. I mean, after all, that's what I'm doing. It's a very human thing, and no matter how wrong we may believe anyone's reaction or approach may be, that it's too sympathetic or too self-righteous or too clinical, etc., we all need to give each other room to express ourselves. For, to me, the greatest error would be to not respond at all or to flippantly treat it as just another casualty of war, or a mere example of our human frailty writ very large. We cannot afford to ignore the hugeness of Ravi's sin. We cannot afford to try to hide behind some shallow idea like King David was a murderer and an adulterer. Well, yeah, King David was, but... I don't believe any true disciple of Jesus would seek to find shelter in that fact or offer shelter to anyone based on the fact of King David's sin. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm thankful for the mercy of God in David's life. I've taken comfort from David's story in my own life on several occasions. But we need to face head-on the reality that David was an Iron Age ruler surrounded by pagan and semi-pagan cultures that influenced Israel. And God's dealing with him was based on God's kindness and understanding of David's cultural limitations due to that ignorance. How else do you justify his multiple wives or the many killings? And though I have only rarely encountered spiritual half-wits who have somehow worked it out in their own deluded minds that multiple sex partners can be justified for a believer in Jesus by pointing to David or other patriarchs, no true disciple of Jesus can go there or would even desire to go there if he's real. Stumble, yes. Fall, even many times, maybe, yes. 
but always with a repentant heart and a true longing for holiness. If that is not so, then there is reason for such a person in question to examine if he or she even knows Jesus in any but the most basic elementary way. God is rich in mercy. No one knows that better than me, I believe. And I don't ever want to trample on that mercy by turning it into a sloppy means of living in sin with no desire to change. So it is doubly troubling to me that in reading some of the commentary concerning Ravi's story, I have more than once seen appeals to Ravi's sin as being, quote, no different than David's, and that we are making too big a deal out of it. Well, tell that to Ravi's wife and to his children, or to the hundreds upon thousands of people, many college students, drowning in a world of post-adolescent licentiousness, who listened to Robbie's eloquent, heartfelt, empathetic, yet spiritually sound messages. Tell them how Robbie's duplicity, which renders his integrity bankrupt, is no different than David's. And tell that to the women who were injured by Robbie's direct actions upon them. These defendants of Ravi seem to overlook the fact that David repented. He confessed. He was deeply sorry for his sin, even as an Iron Age pre-Christian man. Ravi did not seem to see any need for repentance. I, I don't have any information of what might have passed between him and his family or his closest associates, but... The New Testament requires that a spiritual leader who sins publicly is to be confronted openly and publicly since his sinful practice was public and injured the wider body of Christ as well as defaming the name of the Lord among the heathen. Ravi's sin certainly comes under that definition. This directive is not given so that the one who has sinned can be ridiculed or pilloried, but so that his sin can be shown publicly to have honestly been dealt with in order that people in general can know that all of us are to be held to account and that leaders especially are not given a pass, but on the contrary are held to an even higher standard because of what we claim to teach. Without that, it's all just a bunch of religious useless talk. Common sense should understand that easily, but such common sense is very hard to come by nowadays. Now, all that, I believe, is true, but that is not the main focus of my time here, important as that may be. I'm here today working through my own private struggle at your expense. I'm exposing you to my deep concerns. Of course, you don't have to listen. You can turn me off, but I ask you not to. I ask you to hear me out. And since this will go out to a much wider audience, how can I refer to it as my own private struggle? Well, it's because Ravi was very close to me in my inner wars. Not, let me be clear, not as a personal counselor, or a spiritual older brother, for Ravi and I never met. But in a time when close heart bonds were hard to come by, and spiritual fathers were as rare as gold, at least in hard times when spiritual battle was strong against me, mostly because of the nature of my message and ministry, Ravi was especially meaningful to me. We shared a similar message, a kindred literary and philosophical and theological focus. And yes, I suppose you could say that he was close to me in the bond of mutual interest and that having similar type of ministry. But thousands might also say that. People far greater than me. But I also felt something deeper connecting Ravi and me on occasions when he would speak of his own battles on the road, I could feel that he seemed to understand some things that I 
painfully understood and couldn't talk to people about. Just that small assurance, though communicated by means of the impersonal instrument of a CD player in my car, helped give me a sense of support I deeply appreciated on those occasions, just as I am told by some that my voice has been that kind of comfort for others in their times of spiritual battle behind the steering wheel. Yes, I know it's the Holy Spirit that is our comforter, of course. And anyone speaking truth might be such an instrument. But it's not enough sometimes to just hear anyone. There's a special ingredient in how we communicate. uh, In not only what we say, but the human element of who we are to our listeners. That provides a depth of experience which the Holy Spirit then incarnates and blesses and multiplies. And in such special bonds between speaker and listener, you eventually can form an affectionate sense of familiarity with the speaker. And that is why some people may be far more effective than others in helping us. We feel each other. That makes the message more than academic information. It makes it kind of heart-to-heart nourishment. So for me, like for so many, Robbie's voice was a guiding light in times of darkness, often in the early days before Mary and I married, and even after when, for whatever reason, Mary was not able to be with me on the road. It was a recorded message by Ravi in my car audio that helped me keep my mind focused on what was true and pure. Any man who travels alone knows what I'm talking about. Even men who have maintained an early life of sexual purity can still suffer the mental battles that attack him on a late night highway. The loneliness of the road builds a platform in a man that can attract wandering spirits. It's right that the New Testament makes it a point to send messengers out two by two, but they didn't go out two by two always. Having traveling companions in ministry is still a good thing, but it's not a fail-safe way of staying morally clean. I traveled with four other band members on a bus in close proximity as a young musician, but still found ways to feed my secret addictions living right under their nose. Addicts are very talented and amazingly resourceful at working their spells to get what they want. I hear the word accountability tossed around a lot, but I never found accountability to be effective in keeping me from sin. See, because the ongoing sin is in the heart, not an accountability problem in outward logistics. It's it's in the heart. My heart was simply not fully given to Jesus yet. So I found my drug of choice, even on the road, with a Christian band, with other musicians around me all the time. Yet traveling is... Uh, yeah, it's a spiritually taxing thing. There's a special sort of aloneness that can awaken a special sort of entitlement. And that awakens a special sort of self-excusing carelessness that can grow out of that mess and makes all kinds of seemingly reasonable excuses for what would otherwise be seen clearly in open daylight for what it really is, a devilish lying temptation. It's hard even for people who were raised well and who have no particular broken sexual history to be on the road alone. But then there are men like me who have early baggage. And even with all kinds of good and helpful ministry, still have inner weaknesses that make us more vulnerable. So I especially loved Robbie's voice as a companion in certain battles. I'm going into far more detail here than I normally would because I want you to understand these dynamics. I'm sure there are many men and women 
who would hear my story and say, yes, I understand, that's exactly right. That's how I felt many times. So I write now for all of us who might be especially hurting by the revelation of Ravi Zacharias's duplicity. All those years, he was hiding a terrible sexual secret, one that he never only, well, he not only refused to acknowledge, but refused to address even after his victims came forward. And to me, it is all the more frightening and painful when he refused to acknowledge his sin, even when he learned he had inoperable terminal cancer. See, Ravi left behind victims. Only the Lord and his family know what he divulged privately, and that is his business. I, I don't dare want to presume on that. But you see, some of his victims were people he supposedly had ministered to. So Ravi has left behind a terrible, unaddressed mess. But lest you mistake what I'm saying here is some self-righteous pronouncement of condemnation on a man I deeply loved and respect. Again, let me explain. If you go back far enough in my own past, you can find my victims. Some who I supposedly ministered to also. I spent my early 30s trying to make contact with them and to ask their forgiveness. I'm not saying this necessarily is measured in chronological age, by the way. But the sins of our youth are more understandable than willful duplicity in our mature years. As a young man, I even had some stumbles with new people while trying to make amends with former people. I felt like a man bathing in a mud puddle, but I kept at it because I was determined by God's grace and help to put it all right as possible and to come to a place of moral purity where I stopped needing to ask forgiveness, stopped merely working at sin management, but could live in the power and freedom of the Spirit. It was extra painful because in certain circles I was already well known in in those days. I'd been a musician with songs on the jukebox, a public speaker, a high-profile campus leader, but I learned early that the higher the platform, the more damage was done to anyone who fell off of it. And I longed for truth and reality more than I longed for notoriety. At this point, I need to make something extra clear. I'm not saying that I had some morally superior inner character that Ravi did not possess. I'm only saying that when the Holy Spirit called me, I ran to him with all I knew how. How part of my grief over... Ravi, is that he seemingly did not do that. He seemed to be able to compartmentalize to a frightening degree. Now, we all compartmentalize. We all do it. But it takes a great degree of self-deception to be able to do it for a long, sustained period of time on the level that Ravi seemingly did it. It would seem that the duplicity would become unbearable for anyone who really knows Jesus. The pain of not being real seems to me would have driven a true believer to doing whatever it costs to get real. Could having a so-called high-profile reputation increase the ability to compartmentalize to such a degree that fear of public loss would override that kind of pain and longing to be real? Well, I guess it can. John Wimber said wisely many years ago that we were not meant for the level of high-profile fame our culture and technology now provides for. And if that was true in the 80s when he said that, think how true it is now. None of us can carry that kind of high platform. Notoriety is both dangerous to want and more dangerous to obtain. For the fear of man brings a snare. 
Was Ravi snared by the fear of being truthful and honest because he was well known or because he was the figurehead of a ministry enterprise that had become so large and financially devouring that he felt for the sake of all his employees he had to just keep up the facade? He wouldn't be the first to say that. I could name a short list at least of well-known leaders who said after being exposed to some of, because of some sin, usually sexual or whatever, that they had no one to talk to or that they had so much pressure to keep the machine going that they just kept doing the ministry till it finally toppled. So at what point does a person in that position see clearly that he has built something that is so opposite to the kingdom of God that Jesus has nothing to do with its structure and that he not only must let it fall apart, but should by all means let it fall apart. Was that what Ravi's... I'm sorry. Was that was that what motivated Ravi? So it would have cost him and the RZIM organization too much if he cried out for help. So what is it costing now? How much the body of Christ is to blame for our celebrity worship that feeds this sort of monster is a whole nother issue, but one I'll only mention here. But let me, let me mention it. In this current climate of constant confusion and disillusionment and private pain in so many, often pain due to similar secret struggles as Robbie's, I believe with all that is in me that if Robbie had used his notoriety to tell the truth about himself, to say that he believes the gospel enough to get to get real about his ongoing private struggles and to come clean to his wife, to his family, to his close co-workers, and to the huge and growing audience worldwide, to ask forgiveness for those he had injured. He would have lost some supporters, I'm sure. There's always Pharisees out there that don't know anything about sin because they've never sinned. But the vast majority of people would not only have met him with open arms of support, but would have greatly helped in their own ability to reach out for help on their own, in their own circles. God would have turned all this evil on its head and what was meant for evil would have been turned for good. Not only for Ravi, not only for many hurting people, but for the entire church. For it would have helped to destroy this long-standing legalistic religious facade that plays like we don't have a sex drive that self-righteous judgmentalism on the one hand that deprives so many of the freedom to honestly ask for help, and it would have ripped away the puritanical rule of silence which teaches men and women, especially those in leadership, that they must fake it, claim some fake exalted place of immunity to the normal temptations of life that most people have to face daily. Great good would have come from Robbie's confession and truth-telling if he had spoken it. So let me summarize so far. Remember I'm unpacking my own pain here by talking about Ravi's. I felt unusually connected to Ravi because the similarity of our calling, field of study, and spiritual battle was somewhat alike. I felt even more deeply the bond because of the empathy with the battle of traveling ministry that he sometimes so honestly divulged. So, having said all that, what do I feel now? Well, I want to try to unpack the answer to to that question and end this message with an examination of what I believe is wrong with us. What's wrong with us corporately that helped to set Ravi up for his failure And what can we do to correct it in the future? So, what do I feel now? Uh, I'm feeling the weight of seeing firsthand what I might have produced 
If I had not allowed the Holy Spirit to correct and cleanse and protect me from this kind of failure, it's very difficult to write this, and I'm fearful that I might be misunderstood. Yes, if you might hear me claiming that, quote, I'm glad that I am not as other men. I'm glad I have handled things better, end quote. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying just the exact opposite. I'm saying that I was far worse than Ravi, both in sinful practice and in hiding from the truth. I could rattle the college campuses with my preaching and ministry gifts and hours after a seemingly successful ministry time go out and make immoral hookups on the same campus. Early on, it seemed that I was heading for a higher and broader platform of public ministry, both musically and in words, but my secret sexual brokenness was becoming lower and darker as my public ministry was rising higher and brighter. The divergence between those two irreconcilable aspects of my life were like a building with supporting walls that were becoming wider and wider apart. Sooner or later, the entire roof would come crashing down. I not only knew my duplicity was impossible to maintain, it was hellishly painful. I knew such pain was because it was not God's design for for life. I mean, to say it was not his will is a silly understatement. I wanted him more than I wanted my sin. But the the sin dynamic in my flesh was so deeply ingrained from such early exposure and continued reinforcement by constant secret habits of sin that only a great crash would bring me to the end of my public self. So there came a time when that pain became so great that the crash did occur. Thankfully, before a great many people would be hurt by it, But make no mistake, even as a young man with a very limited but ever-growing public platform, my crash still hurt a lot of people, as my sin had hurt a lot of people. Uh, Yet I knew it would not hurt nearly as many as my ongoing impure mixtures would, would hurt. So I embraced the work of the cross in me with all I could. Everything came to a screeching halt in my ministry life. Music dried up. Speaking became an utter impossibility. I would have gladly gone into hiding and taken odd jobs to sustain myself just so long as I could no longer have to suffer the pain of being seemingly two people, Dr. Jekyll in the daylight and Mr. Hyde at night. Uh, It was not an instant healing. It was a long daily battle, and all all breaking of addictions are long battles. I'm able to help drug and alcohol addicts, not because I was one, but because my addiction was still an addiction, and all addictions are the same root. To this day, no matter how much Mary loves me, and she does, no matter what a treasure my children and grandchildren are, and they are. No matter how many close, warm friends I have in my life, and I do, I still have to choose every day not to allow that evil that was my first 30 years of life to regain a platform in either my thoughts, my conversation, or my actions. For if allowed into my thoughts, it will eventually bleed into my words. And if allowed into my words, it will eventually regain power in my actions. I'm not a fool. I know that's true. The door is closed on that life, not because I want to keep some religious rules. It is not even that I don't want to live less than who I am claiming to be, as valid as that may be as a motivation. No, I don't want to allow that sin of my past any platform because I don't want anything to hinder or injure or mar my relationships 
and first and foremost, obviously, is my intimacy with Jesus and the Father, which then feeds the river of life that flows into my relationship with Mary, my children and grandchildren, and everyone I love. There were times in my struggle to come fully away from my past when I did try to keep the rules. I I did try to present my best behavior. And that may have had some small degree of good mixed into it, but mostly it was a fleshly struggle to prop up a failing persona, what I've called previously sin management. It was not living water pouring out from my core, but to come to the end of the old and enter into the new in living union with God, there had to be an ongoing process of encounter with him where I honestly interacted with him and he and I united together as father and son. This was and is a process, not because God is holding himself aloof from me, but because I was holding myself aloof from him. It was I who would let him in only just so much that I would withdraw. And, and, and I would withdraw into ministry, for heaven's sakes. Ministry sometimes was the tool of the enemy to keep me from God. I would also, also withdraw into my old self-comforts, pleasures, and deceptions. But he patiently waited for me to get sick of them and to choose him more and more. In this way, he was giving me the new heart, which he promised in Scripture to give me. I had thought that that promise was going to be an instantaneous event, but it was far more important than that. It was a progressive daily event that was transforming me step by step from one level of glory to another, and it came not by rule-keeping or horizontal behaviors, but by beholding him. What I mean by beholding him is seeing him and desiring what I saw more and more. And the seeing of him uh, came in many forms. It might come through a song that put me to tears or a worship moment that left me deeply moved or a scripture that became alive to me or a testimony that made me righteously jealous for what they had encountered Or the calling to me of a sunset that promised that I won't always be here on this level of creation. Bit by bit I was being transformed until things I used to refuse to do not only became, uh, because I, I, I might get caught, became things I was repelled at the thought of doing. Because I would rather die than blemish the union I have with him. And that continues to this day. There's still plenty in me that's not united to him as he means it to be. But I am changing. I'm transforming. And he is my everything. My love for Mary and for my children and for my friends and those loves are not in some descending rank I I grieve when I hear people say, I love God first and my wife second and my children third. Love doesn't have a rank of, of echelon. No, my love relationship with Jesus enhances and feeds all love in my life. Mary and I share what we share because it's rooted in our bond with Jesus, with the Father. So what's all this got to do with Ravi or with the answer to our previous question of what might be wrong with us? Well, I say this with fear and trembling. I love Ravi and I'm really angry at him because I love him. I trusted him. I didn't want to believe that a man who spoke so eloquently truths that I needed could turn out to be so glaringly false. I know, by the way, that all truth is still truth, no matter how broken the vessel it comes through. But remember what I said about how we grow in human empathy and support when people we learn from seem to have 
lived through those truths. We are hearing them teach. So it's a bit silly for us to try to say all truth is truth and it makes no difference if the messenger is real or fake. There's an element of truth to that, but that whole idea can also be really silly. It does make a huge difference. If it doesn't matter about the messenger, only the message, then why would Scripture make clear that teachers and leaders are held to a higher standard than others? Why does Paul say, you who are followers, be followers of me as, as I follow Christ? Let's get rid of this religious sophistry. It's very, very painful and detrimental to learn that the man who helped you resist sexual temptation by saying truth about the nature of temptation was not walking in that truth himself. Right, it doesn't weaken the truth, but it certainly does weaken the human bond that was helping us digest that truth. Would it matter to you if you were to learn that I was practicing my old sins still to this day? Would you just keep listening to me and tell yourself, well, he spoke the truth even if he didn't live it? You know the answer to that. What good would it be to you if hearing the truth of the cross to free us from sin is not working enough to help the messenger go free of sin? We say the message is still true, if not the messenger, okay? Then what is happening in that messenger that would cause him to be so clear in his message, yet so muddy in his life? Anyone who ever heard Ravi and who knows even a little of what it takes to form a message that challenges hearts is understandably dumbfounded at what has happened. Here we get into an area where I cannot speak with absolutes about Ravi. I can only turn to his words. Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. We can fake it to some degree, but there comes a point when your heart overflows with what's really inside you. What would Ravi have said privately under the weight of the present reality he left behind us to, to, to us? If he could talk with us right now, I would have to believe that out of what is in his heart in abundance, he would cry out, I know, I know, Lord, forgive me. I'm so terribly sorry for refusing to let the truth I taught become the truth I lived. And I believe he certainly has done that and maybe far more as he comes into the presence where lies cannot survive the burning light of truth. We will all enter that light one day, by the way. But I write this with fear and trembling because I lived exactly that kind of double life for many years. I could speak eloquently about sexual sin, then go out and compartmentalize my speaking apart from my doing, then afterwards return to the religious facade and again convince myself I was true. And please hear this. I was not consciously, willfully being a hypocrite. I did not chuckle to myself and say, boy, if those chumps only knew the truth. But I've got them fooled. Ha, ha, ha. No, when I refer to compartmentalization, I refer to a broken mechanism within all of us, some worse than others where one can nearly completely disassociate from the part of himself that he has just given place to and then enter into union with an acceptable, respectable, even seemingly godly part that is not faking it, but is very much broken and headed into deeper evil. King David Speaking of David, David saw this dangerous dichotomy in himself when he prayed, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Don't let my heart be divided. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James says. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Back in those terrible days in my early Christian life, I would periodically 
Here, those verses read or quoted in the Spirit in me would move in me strongly and make me aware that I deeply needed to pray those exact words and to mean them. And that if I would, he would hear and perform that in me which I could not do on my own. And that would strengthen my will to begin then to choose against my old habits and become more and more real. He would most certainly unite my heart so that I could truly honor and fear his name. He would certainly work in me till what came out of my mouth was really what was in my heart. And they were the same and not compartmentalized self-deception. It would be instant no. No, it would not be instant. For this process is designed to help us choose the good day by day rather than be taken over mindlessly by it. And in that way, we are being given a new heart, and we are being changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord in us. What religion has refused to acknowledge, and what we in the evangelical world particularly have refused to see, is that more and more knowledge will not transform us. Knowledge is important, but it is not transformative. It's only a beginning. How many college students, teachers, preachers, professors, and intellectuals have I sat with as they poured out some terrible story about themselves and found as I tried to help them into the presence a strange resistance coming up in them, an intellectual wall of information sharing. They wanted to then go into their head and inform and talk and reason and dissect. But it did not give them life for all this stuff they wanted to talk about would not let truth penetrate their core where their pain was, which was feeding their various addictions. Because knowledge alone cannot transform us. To, to exemplify this most profoundly, let's turn to Ravi's own words. Ravi could write words such as these, speaking to a, the child-molesting Oscar Wilde in a book Ravi wrote on the trap of sensuality. Ravi says to Oscar Wilde, quote, Did you ever love one of those boys for his own sake? Well, Ravi... Did you ever love any of those women you misused for their sake? Ravi then goes on to say of Wilde, quote, He was a genius, yet sadly he floundered and struggled with habits and propensities that ultimately crashed him beneath their weight. As I read and reread his biographies, at times my heart ached for Oscar Wilde in his struggles. And at other times, I marveled at the sheer folly with which he threw his life away, like an object caught in the tension of two opposing forces. His body and mind were torn between the love of God and the enticement of the sensual. Those words once described me. But when he wrote them, when Ravi wrote them, he was describing himself caught in the tension of two opposing forces. How? How does someone write so clearly and accurately while not transforming within? As I read Ravi's words, I could see him poring over books. He refers to reading and rereading book after book about Oscar Wilde. Why? I don't think it was mere research. I remember so well doing the same thing, crawling through libraries, reading, rereading, striving to understand, so I could then change my mind, so I could transform my desires, so I could adjust my behavior, so I could be wise and prudent. But one day, while reading through Matthew chapter 11, I came across these words of Jesus where he said, 
I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and you have revealed them to babes. Is there anything wrong with wanting to be wise? Uh, I hope not. In itself, obviously not. In fact, we know from Scripture the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to help us read the Bible. Don't we need to be prudent? Well, what is prudence? Technically, it is the good sense to avoid foolish behavior. What's wrong with that? Nothing. That's what we try to teach our children. But Jesus is saying here that there are those who seek to be wise for their own sake. Or as the King James says it, I think in Isaiah 5, 21, they seek to be wise in their own eyes. Jesus is saying, when you pursue wisdom instead of me, when you make being wise a, a goal of, of your own ego, you may gain great information. And it may even be, it, it may even move you to a certain kind of eloquence about truth. But that is not what I want from you, the Lord is saying. I want you. It is just at this point that he says in Matthew 11, after he says what I'm just quoting, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He told the Pharisees who were the wise and prudent of their culture, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but they point to me, and you will not come to me in order that you might have life. And of course, evangelicalism always makes that verse about getting saved. You know, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. But actually, I don't want to get off in in all the ramifications of what I'm saying here, but we are saved, we are being saved, we shall be saved. Salvation is an all-encompassing force of grace that works in our life all the time. And God help us if if, if we actually sit back and think that uh, Jesus is going to uh, throw Robbie away or throw any of us away. He has begun a good work in us, we'll finish it. But we're living in a culture that won't allow people to tell the truth about themselves. They won't allow themselves to be weak, to be fragile, to be failures. They won't allow themselves to be known. And as a result of that, the ego drives us even in our ministries said at some point you have to become like a little child. So are you? Are you like a little child? David David got there in Psalm, Psalm 131. He says, I, I've learned not to lift myself up with subjects that are too big for me. I once saw a bumper sticker that read, uh, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. I sneered at it, flipped it off. It's just one more slogan of a generation of childish grown-ups who never embraced adult responsibility. But now, I simply agree with it. The Father, it's never too late for you to come to the Father. Never too late for you to open up to Him the mess that you've made of your life, whatever form that, that's been, and say, Father, I can't, I can't fix this. Daddy, I can't, I can't correct this. You know, for years and years and years after I had repented, I was still greatly burdened by the, the, the damage I'd left behind me. Uh, not just sexually, but, uh, you know, sexual sin quite often also has a, a component in it of anger because 
sexual frustration can can cause the male sex drive especially to to go into times of real unreasonable anger because of the pent-up frustration. I had a really bad temper. I had a, a shameful temper. In fact, I can tell you uh, there, there are memories of uh, misbehaving in anger that rival, if not surpass, my uh, sexual sin. And I would grieve over it and grieve over it and grieve over it and I would write letters and I would make phone calls and I would try to find people and uh, spend a lot of energy doing that. And the enemy was driving me. I mean, okay, I've lost him in that area, but I'm going to drive him into the ground with self-condemnation and make him, make him think it's conviction. And a life was very unenjoyable because I was still not being... I was still not being childlike. I was still trying to be wise and prudent. And finally, just from the exhaustion of all that, I just had to come to my elder brother and say, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't do it anymore. Take me, take me home to our father. That's a whole nother story in itself, but, uh, I did. Uh, so I've learned uh, all we have to do is stop working to be wise and prudent and to come to him not as a miserable sinner, not as a wise scholar, but as a little child. Let me, let me just close our time with a, 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 one of the best stories I know to illustrate this. It comes from our friends uh, James and Denise Jordan who have had a powerful worldwide ministry in bringing people into the truth of the, the love of the Father. And I heard James tell this story. He said when he was in Bible school, he was in a pub with a group of students, and they were all trying to witness to this young atheist, intellectual, who was full of intellectual zinger kind of questions that uh, would cause Christian students to wrestle with him and fight with him and argue with him and try to win him with uh, arguments equal to his intellect. And they were doing this one night. And uh, this elderly man who they knew was a believer who worked there in the pub just walked over and interjected himself into the uh, conversation by saying to the atheist, he said, uh, son, did you, did you ever have a German shepherd? All of a sudden, that seemed to stop this young atheist in his tracks. And he blanched and his face went pale. And he said, yes, I did. And the old man said, what happened to him? He said, my father shot him right in front of me. And at that moment, there was a little child whose father had so horribly failed him. And this elderly bottle washer at the pub ministered to this man. James said he didn't come to Christ that night, but the door was wide open for the rest of the work to be done. I, I, I love apologetics. I've got all the material on my bookshelf that speaks to those issues. As I get older, I'm like David more and more in this sense of Psalm 131. I'm learning not to take upon myself things that are too big for me. I'm learning to quiet myself like a little child, like a weaned child. What is a weaned child? It's a child that's learned not to get what it wants on its terms immediately just because it cries loudly. It's a child who has learned to trust and wait when there's a delay in whatever's needed. 
So let me try to summarize uh, and bring my point home with some clarity that you can hold on to. I believe what is wrong with us is an over-intellectual approach to the gospel. That doesn't mean we necessarily want to be simplistic to the point of religious stupidity. We've seen that before. Uh, and I, I don't think I have to explain that to anybody who's a listener here. But uh, but let's pray through this. Uh, I believe that, that what we see in Ravi and what is found in multiple thousands of evangelical Christians who are full of information and always cramming for more, who are so enamored with degrees and letters and proofs of the faith, as right as that may be in its place. What is killing us is this searching after knowledge while never humbling ourselves as a little child and coming to the Father to receive from Him directly. And I know how simplistic this sounds, and I know I'm not trying to say, oh, here's the answer. I know this is complicated, but I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with it, and I want you to wrestle with it. Some of you may know that prior to the sexual scandal coming public, there was a previous relatively minor, comparatively uh, minor issue concerning Robbie's claim to have intellectual achievements that he did not truly have. When I first heard of this, I was angry at the seeming stupidity of, of the whole issue. So what if Robbie's doctorates were, quote, only honorary? I yelled at my computer when the news first came across it. Uh, Go do one-tenth of what Robbie has done for the truth of the gospel. Then come jaw at us about whether his doctorates are real or not, I said. And though I still feel exactly that way, that those who criticized Robbie for uh, claiming to have a doctorate and that it was only a, a... Honorary doctorate. Well, that, that, to me, that's all hyper intellectual posturing of people who might have a lot of intellect, but no practical use of it for any meaningful achievement in the, for the kingdom. Uh, they're Pharisees, seemingly, from what I can tell. There are those who seek honors of men and not of God, who glorify their own intellect above the matters of the heart. They're, they're, but they were right only in this, where Ravi was concerned. They exposed a root issue in Ravi that I believe fed into his sexual brokenness. Ravi must have felt somehow inferior. He wanted to prove himself so badly that he was willing to make intellectual claims that were not true. Even though, where it really counted, in the demanding world of truth conflicts on college campuses and government halls and places of great influence, Ravi was a great force to be reckoned with. And uh, I would I would rather have Ravi's ability without a PhD than to have a PhD and uh, not have Ravi's ability. But his little boy heart, which his father had so often wounded, you would know that from gleaning from Ravi's story. His father was a very hard man, a man that um, came to Christ late and was reconciled to Ravi in some ways, but I don't know that he ever repented to Ravi for his early verbal and I think sometimes physical abuse. But even in, in his great spiritual learning, Robbie did not know how to come like a little child and let his father love him, his heavenly father, love him to wholeness. So thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father, if I'm wrong in anything I've said, please Forgive me and please cleanse from anybody's mind the wrong concept that may have drawn from, may have drawn from my wrong presentation. But let whatever I may have spoken of the truth grow in us. 
I pray, Lord, for a deliverance from an intellectualization of the reality of the gospel that causes us to be full of information. We, we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we don't eat of the tree of life. Uh, help us, Lord, to eat of the tree of life. Uh, and let, let our, our communication of knowledge flow from life, not the other way around, seeking knowledge, thinking in, in that, in it we, we have life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit guiding us all into all truth. And I pray especially for any who are suffering from uh, not just Robbie's recent collapse, but any other disappointments in ministers or spiritual leaders they've looked up to who have failed them. Lord, help us all lay aside our uh, our dependence on anyone but you and help us grow up by becoming more childlike. In Jesus' name, amen.